iTunes presents Meet the Author. Will you please welcome our moderator for this evening, the literary editor of The Times, Erica Wagner. Uh, thank you very much, and um, welcome everyone to this extremely cool venue for a literary talk. Um, I'm uh, Erica Wagner, and um, I will start by introducing Hilary Mantel. Um, so why don't you come join me now? You. you have to sit here while I talk about you. Um, <laughs> for although she needs no introduction, I'm going to introduce her anyway. In her time, Hilary Mantel has studied the law and been, and been employed as a social worker. Now she is one of our most acclaimed and successful novelists. Her novels include Eight Months on Gaza Street, Flood, A Place of Greater Safety, An Experimented Love, The Giant O'Brien, and Beyond Black. Her wonderful memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, was published to great acclaim in 2003, and she is the winner of many prizes not least of which is the Man Booker Prize for her most recent novel, The Astonishing Wolf Hall. Wolf Hall is a glittering, gripping portrait of life in Tudor England at the court of Henry VIII, as seen through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell, who began his life of public service as secretary to Cardinal Wolsey. When the Cardinal fell, however, Cromwell continued to rise as counsellor and secretary to the king, master of the rolls, Lord Privy Seal, eventually Earl of Essex. Wolf Hall chronicles his early life and adventures and his rise to power. As Hilary Mantel has written, every day of Cromwell's political life was a fight, not just because of what he stood for, but because of who he was. He came from a humble background, and historians, as well as contemporaries, seem to have held that against him. He is accused of hounding to his death the saintly Thomas More, though from our perspective, the heretic hunting More doesn't look so saintly, and it was the king, not Cromwell, who wanted More dead. In novels and in plays and films, such as A Man for All Seasons, Cromwell is a cold Machiavellian, or a desiccated administrator. His character has been painted as so comprehensively black that any reasonable person would think, as I did, that there must be another side to the story. Wolf Hall is that other side. This is a novel that plunges the reader into a world which might seem far from the sensibilities of the modern reader. Yet in Mantell's hands, Cromwell and his world come absolutely alive. And for those who think the age of the serious novel is long gone, it's delightful to note that Hillary has proved them wrong. It quickly became the fastest selling winner of the Man Booker Prize since it began 40 years ago, to reach a total now of over 300,000 books sold. Thomas Cromwell, who had an eye for the pounds and the pence, would have been pleased, I'm <laughs> sure. So do welcome Hillary Mantel. Thank you. 
And um, we're going to start Hillary's. Hillary will read um, first. She and I will chat, and then we will have time for questions. I should be um, disposing of this old-fashioned <laughs> item and reading to you from this. Um, unfortunately, when you read aloud to an audience, you don't need to edit your text a bit because we take in information so differently um, through the ear, from, through the eye. And they haven't yet designed into this wonderful system the facility for me to edit my own text as I go along. So I can't get into my own book, which is a slight frustration. So now we're going to do something really old-fashioned and really regressive. A woman is going to read to you. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the very beginning of the book because it starts with a fight. Um, the fight is between father and son. It's the year 1500, and we're in a brewer's yard in Putney. Thomas Cromwell is a boy of 15. And on the first page of the book, it doesn't look as if he'll live to be much older. His attacker is his father, Walter Cromwell, owner of the brewer's yard. So now get up, felled, dazed, silent, he's fallen, knocked full length on the cobbles of the yard. His head turns sideways, his eyes are turned towards the gate, <clears throat> as if someone might arrive to help him out. One blow, properly placed, could kill him now. Blood from the gash on his head, which was his father's first effort, is trickling across his face. Add to this, his left eye is blinded. But if he squints sideways with his right eye, he can see that the stitching of his father's boot is unravelling. The twine has sprung clear of the leather, and a hard knot in it has caught his eyebrow and opened another cut. So now get up. Walter is roaring down at him, working out where to kick him next. He lifts his head an inch or two, moves forward on his belly, trying to do it without exposing his hands, on which Walter enjoys stamping. What are you, an eel? his parent asks. He trots backwards, gathers pace and aims another kick. It knocks the last breath out of him. He thinks it might be his last. His forehead returns to the ground and he lies waiting for Walter to jump on him. The dog Bella is barking, shut away in an outhouse. I'll miss my dog, he thinks. The yard smells of beer and blood. Someone is shouting down by the riverbank. Nothing hurts, or perhaps it's that everything hurts because there's no separate pain he can pick out. But the cold strikes him, just in one place. 
just through his cheekbones as it rests on the cobbles. Look now, look now, Walter bellows. He hops on one foot as if he's dancing. Look what I've done, burst my boot, kicking your head. Inch by inch, inch by inch forward. Never mind if he calls you an eel or a worm or a snake. Head down, don't provoke him. His nose is clotted with blood and he has to open his mouth to breathe. His father's momentary distraction at the loss of his good boot allows him the leisure to vomit. That's right, Walter yells. Spew everywhere, spew everywhere on my good cobbles. Come on, boy, get up. Let's see you get up. By the blood of creeping Christ, stand on your feet. Creeping Christ, he thinks. What does he mean? His head turns sideways. His hair rests in his own vomit. The dog barks, Walter roars, and bells peal out across the water. He feels a sensation of movement, as if the filthy ground has become the Thames. It gives and sways beneath him. He lets out his breath. One great final gasp. You've done it this time, a voice tells Walter. But he closes his ears, or God closes them for him, and he is pulled downstream on a deep black tide. The next thing he knows, it's almost noon, and he's propped up in the doorway of Pegasus the flying horse. His sister Cat is coming from the kitchen with a rack of hot pies in her hands. When she sees him, she almost drops them. Her mouth opens in astonishment. Look at you. Cat, don't shout, it hurts me. She bawls for her husband, Morgan Williams. She rotates on the spot, eyes wild, face flushed from the oven's heat. Take this tray, body of God, where are you all? He's shivering from head to foot, exactly like Bella did when she fell off the boat that time. A girl runs in. The master's gone to town. I know that fool. The sight of her brother had panicked the knowledge out of Cat. She thrusts a tray at the girl. If you leave them where the cats can get at them, I'll box your ears till you see stars. Her hands, hands empty. She clasps them for a moment in violent prayer. Fighting again, or was it your father? Yes, he says, vigorously nodding, making his nose drop gouts of blood. Yes, he indicates himself as if to say, Walter was here. Cat calls for basin, for water, for water in a basin, for a cloth, for the devil to rise up right now and take away Walter, his servant. Sit down, she says, before you fall down. He tries to explain that he's just got up out of the yard. Could be an hour ago. It could even be a day. For all he knows, today might be tomorrow. Except that if he'd lain there for a day, Walter would have come and killed him for being in the way. Or his wounds would have clotted a bit. And by now he would be hurting all over and almost too stiff to move from deep experience of Walter's fists and boots, 
He knows that the second day can be worse than the first. Sit. Don't talk, Cat says. Well, his sister cleans him up and uh, he decides he's had enough of home life. Uh, he decides to run away and be a soldier because if he's going to fight every day, he may as well get paid for it. And he knows that France is a good place for wars. So he gets on the road to Dover. He doesn't eat for a day or so, hurts too much. But by the time he reaches Dover, the big gash on his scalp has closed. And the tender parts inside, he trusts, have mended themselves, kidneys, lung, and heart. He knows by the way that people look at him that his face is still bruised. His sister had done an inventory of him before he left, teeth miraculously still in his head, two eyes miraculously seeing, two arms, two legs, what more do you want? He walks around the docks saying to people, do you know where there's a war just now? And each man he asks stares at his face, steps back and says, you tell me, son. They're so pleased with this that they laugh at their own wit so much that he continues asking just to give people pleasure. Surprisingly, he finds he'll leave Dover richer than he arrived. He'd watched a man doing the three-card trick. And when he'd learned it, he set up for himself. And because he's a boy, people stop to have a go. It's their loss. He sees three elderly lowlanders struggling with their bundles, and he moves to help them. The packages are soft and bulky, samples of woolen cloth. A port officer gives them trouble about their documents, shouting into their faces. He lounges behind the clerk, pretending to be a lowland oaf, and tells the merchants by holding up his fingers what he thinks is a fair bribe. Please, says one of them in effortful English to the clerk, will you take care of these English coins for me? I find them surplus. And suddenly the clerk is all smiles. The lowlanders are all smiles, they would have paid much more. And when they board, they say, the boy's with us. As they wait to cast him off, they ask him his age. He says 18, but they say, child, you are never. He offers them 15, and they confer, and they decide that 15 will do. They think he's younger, but they don't want to shame him. They ask what's happened to his face. There are several things he could say, but he selects the truth. He doesn't want them to think he's some failed robber. They discuss it among themselves, and the one who can translate turns to him, saying, we are saying the English are cruel to their children and cold-hearted. The child must stand if his father comes in the room. 
And always the child should say very correctly, my father, sir, and madam, my mother. He's surprised. Are there people in the world who are not cruel to their children? For the first time, the weight in his chest shifts a little. He thinks there could be other places better. By the time the main action of the book takes up, um, we're meeting Thomas Cromwell around about the age of 40. He's now back in London. He's an established man, a lawyer. He has a wife, three children, and he's in the confidence of Cardinal Wolsey, the Lord Chancellor. Thomas Cromwell's now a little over 40 years old. He's a man of strong build, not tall. Various expressions are available to his face, and one is readable, an expression of stifled amusement. His hair is dark, heavy, and waving, and his small eyes, which are a very strong sight, light up in conversation, so the Spanish ambassador will tell us quite soon. It's said he knows by heart the entire New Testament in Latin, and so, as a servant of the cardinal, is apt, ready with a text if abbots flounder. His speech is low and rapid, his manner assured. He's at home in courtroom or waterfront, bishop's palace or inn yard. He can draft a contract, train a falcon, draw a map, stop a street fight, furnish a house and fix a jury. He'll quote to a nice point in the old authors from Plato to Plautus and back again. He knows new poetry and can say it in Italian. He works all hours, first up and last to bed. He makes money and he spends it. He'll take a bet on anything. Thank you very much, Hilary. And um, I will start by asking, uh, before we move on to the, the different, the way in which you uh, chose the period of Thomas Cromwell's life that you would focus on, how did you how did you find him in the first place? A dim memory, I think, from school history. Um, I, I had a Catholic education. I went to a convent secondary school and of course Thomas More was the saint in the stained glass window and all the history that was taught to us was partisan history and I suppose I'm just a contrarian and I simply wanted to know the other side of the story and we were always set up and then of course A Man for All Seasons came along and continued it. There was this great story, this, this great opposition between Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More. And of course, it is a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and as, as you said earlier, Erica, the, the prime mover in destroying Thomas More was the king, not Cromwell. Um, but I thought 
that there must be a more complicated story here. And I suppose I shared the general perception of Thomas Cromwell as a wicked man. But I thought, that doesn't mean he's not interesting. So let's, let's try and look into this story a little bit more deeply. However, I did absolutely nothing about it for, oh, 25 years or so. Because I thought about writing this book long before I was a published author at all. And in the meanwhile, I thought, it's so good, this story. Blacksmith's son to Earl of Essex. Somebody is going to write it. And I waited and waited, and they didn't. So in the end, it fell to me. And then we were emailing uh, a little bit this afternoon, and one of the things you said that was, was very interesting is that actually, uh, and what you've done in your reading now is skip over. Um, the action really only begins when he's 40, which is when there is more known about his yes. little-known life than there is about his childhood, his young manhood, some novelists might have chosen to focus on that unexplored yeah. part of his life, but, but you haven't. Yes, well, the background to the Cromwell family is pretty obscure, really. Um, Walter Cromwell was a blacksmith and a brewer, and the only reason we know anything about him is that he was always in the local courts. Um, he was watering his ale, or he was drunk, or he was assaulting someone. Uh, one way or another, in the criminal or civil courts, Walter is always making a showing. Otherwise, we wouldn't know anything about this obscure family. When Thomas Cromwell ran away, we can't reconstruct year by year what happened to him. But it seems that he went to France, and he, he joined the French army as a mercenary. The French were fighting in Italy. He was present at one major battle in Italy. And then somehow he surfaces working in Florence for one of the merchant banks. Now, how he made that transition, it, it's very hard to know. Um, and he went on to work in Venice, in Rome, he went back and settled in Antwerp for a time, working as an agent in the wool trade, came back to England in his late 20s and set himself up as a lawyer. So he'd already lived in those 10 years, uh, as, you know, as much as many people are going to do in their whole lives. And he'd come back with a, a cosmopolitan perspective and several languages at his command. He seemed to have been someone who picked up languages very easily. And then fitted back into the order in England, working for Wolsey. Because we can't know about these years, I chose not to invent them in any detail. What I wanted to do was to concentrate on Cromwell when he comes onto the record which is really when he's working for the Cardinal. And those lost years, I wanted to indicate them 
by simulating the natural process of memory. You know, as we go through our lives, we don't sit down and suddenly have a great flashback in the way people do on screen or in novels. Memory threads itself in and out of ordinary occasions. Some tiny thing, it might be a stray word or phrase, or just the shift of the light in a room, trips us out of the present day and right back into our past, which then rises up in, with a sort of sensory fullness around us. And of course, what we notice about these memories is that they're not necessarily a continuous stream or loop. They don't necessarily fit together, and they don't necessarily make sense. And I wanted, in telling this story of a man's life, to capture something of the work, uh, of the, the nature of memory, so that the backstory is told to you in little flashes which overlap. And when I move on to the next book, there'll be more of these, so you'll be able to reconstruct a little bit more of his life in Florence, maybe what he did in Rome. It depends what I remember on his behalf. I haven't quite worked out the strategy yet, but it will never fit together as one big story. And I think that really reflects the way our lives are to us. Um, I had a sense when I was younger that I couldn't write this book till I got to the right age for it. I don't know if that makes sense, but I wrote a novel about the French Revolution, A Place of Greater Safety, which was very much a young person's book could only have been written by a young person. And most of the chief actors of the revolution were dead by the age of 35 or 36. I couldn't write that book now, but I couldn't have written Wolf Hall when I was in my 20s and 30s. I had to live and get to know what it was like to move from culture to culture uh, and to have, if you like, a complicated past and how that might feel. And I think that's, that's a sense that you can transfer from our century back to theirs. I was just, um, as I was saying to you before, I was just in Dublin talking to Roddy Doyle, who has completed a trilogy also of, of historical novels, so that the last novel comes up into the, into the present day. And he was telling me that, uh, particularly in the first book, A Star Called Henry, which is set uh, during the Easter Rising, he said he felt no responsibility to the facts. And although he then allowed that you had to get it right somehow. But I, I wonder, what, what, do you, what is your responsibility to the I facts? I think that's really interesting. Just as you were saying it, I was thinking, the Easter Rising is half myth anyway. Um, maybe what he feels is that he is creating another layer of myth. And I suppose you could look at Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII in the same way. Uh, you are conscious 
when you write a novel like this, that you're in the ring with all the former representations of your people who have ever existed. And they're standing behind your character like shadows, or it's as if there were a series of mirrors. They're all there, the accurate ones and the inaccurate ones as well, uh, the factual and, and the mythic. But I, I don't take Roddy Doyle's view. To me, it seems there's no point in doing this unless you get it as nearly right as you can, given the fact that there are gaps, and in those gaps, you're going to speculate. But it seems to me that it's only honest and honorable to speculate on the basis of the best evidence you can get. But then you move forward into where historians don't go, into realms sure. of emotion into a sort of personal interpretation. Yes, I think you carry on asking questions when the historian and even the biographer has stopped. Because they say, after this point, all is speculation. And the novelist uses the license she has to move into that territory. But again, as I say, I think you should do it on the basis of the best evidence. But there is one huge difference between what you are doing as a novelist and what a historian is doing, in that the historian is operating with the benefit of hindsight. You also, in that you are a kind of historian, but when you write, you're not perched on an eminence looking back at your people and analyzing their mistakes. What you're doing is moving them forward on the basis of the incomplete information they have. You're walking beside them as they walk into their unknown futures. And then once you can pull off that maneuver, which is the heart of fiction, um, the past seems to Look, far less cut and dried. What you do is, I think, you pitch your characters into a shortened, heightened, dramatic version of their own lives. Uh, you take it incident by incident, conversation by conversation, so that the reader is thinking, well, of course, Henry VIII said A, but if he'd said B, would history have been different? And it knocks away the determinism. It's like hurling contingency back into the past. So in a way, what we are trying to do, as, as novelists, I think, is to reproduce the feel of lived experience. And of course, there's a thing that historians never can do, because it's not their job. Uh, they will tell you what happened, but they can't tell you how it felt at the time. You can only do that by moving forward with your character, who can't see the future. So I think, I used to think when I started writing, 
that a novelist was an inferior sort of historian. But now I think that actually what, what we do is complementary. It's, it's a different way of looking at the past. But historians are in the business of narrative, just as, as novelists are. And we have to recognize that they write with prejudices, with, um, from a mindset, from a point of view, just as a novelist does, except they're often not willing to admit that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's interesting, though, what you said just now. You said historians tell you what happened. And you, of course, in this book, tell us what happens. It yes. happens in the present tense, which certainly, I, as, a, as a reader, puts you in that, you know, in a position where there, there can't be hindsight. Did that help you as a, as a writer? Was that a conscious decision? The, the reason I wrote the book in the present tense is that that was how it immediately presented itself to me. Um, what I think what goes on in your head as a novelist is a multimedia experience. It comes along with audio and video. Um, and it comes highly colored. And it unrolls in your head like a film. At least that's how I experience it. And what you then have to do is go through an act of encoding that turns it into little gray marks on the paper. And we're just now, thanks to the marvels of technology, um, turning this process around the other way and enhancing the book so that it goes into different media. I saw Wolf Hall, I saw it unroll, I heard it, and I wrote down what I heard and saw. Um, and although you would think, you know, the decision whether to write in the present tense or the past tense is absolutely fundamental to how a text sounds and how the reader engages with it. But it is often the case that these decisions which are so important to a book are actually taken in a split second. They're perfectly unconscious. It just happens onto the page. Or at least that was my experience with this book. And, of course, this book finishes with Thomas Cromwell's life. There's still much to run. How are you going to take this forward? The, the, the book finishes on the evening of Thomas More's death. Um, More has been beheaded. Cromwell is engaged on a tidying up exercise. Moore's prayer book is brought in. He flicks through it in case there are any hidden messages inside. He finds none. Thankfully, it hasn't got any blood spots on it. He decides it can be returned to the family, so. Um, and then his next duty as he sifts through his evening paperwork, 
is to plan Henry VIII's summer holidays. <laughs> and they're going off to, on a progress to the West Country. Um, and he makes out the itinerary. And as he, as he um, reaches the end of it, he, he realizes that he's got a few days spare. So he thinks that would be time to visit the, the, the Seymour family in Wiltshire um, before Bromham, he makes a dot in the margin and draws a long arrow across the page. Now, here, he says, before we go to Winchester, we have time to spare. And what I think is, we'll visit the Seymours. He writes it down. Early September, five days, Wolf Hall. Um, and I really like the idea of writing a book that was in progress till its very last word, where the arrow was always pointing forward. So the next book, The Mirror and the Light, will find the King's Party in September at Wolf Hall. Um, sometimes people have said to me, well, this was Thomas Cromwell's rise the next book will be his fall, surely, but no, no, far from it. Uh, he has a long way to rise yet. You know, it's the story of where did it all go right? <laughs> and he's going to end up as Earl of Essex. Um, his fall will come in the, the summer of 1540. There were intimations of it. But in the end, when it happened, it happened in the course of a morning. And we have then five years. We have five years to cover. I think at that juncture, I'll let you ask the questions. Now, do we, we have some microphones, I think. Um, so anyone? Over here. I just wanted to know why you chose the title Wolf Hall. Why I chose the title, I, I think I've partly given you the answer because it was Wolf Hall is the home of the Seymour family and it's the point towards the book which the book is always tending. Um, as I say, the arrow going straight forward. But I also chose it for its metaphorical resonance, of course, because in the, in the text, Cromwell thinks to himself at one point, you know, he thinks of the old proverb, man is wolf to man. And I wanted it for its metaphorical resonance. In a sense, anywhere where Henry's court is, is Wolf Hall. I preface my question by saying I admired the book very, very much indeed. Many paragraphs begin with a he, and one has to concentrate and work very hard on finding out who the he is, whether it's Cromwell or it's some other character. I wondered if this was a deliberate device on your part to make the reader concentrate. Uh, 
it's a, an in, a device that's intrinsic to the book, actually. On the first page, Thomas Cromwell is he. And he is all, it's always he, unless you're told different. Um, once you've grasped that, I think it's easy enough, actually. But the reason I did it like that is that it's to do with viewpoint. It's to do with point of view. I, I could not have written this book from, the point, from a first-person perspective. It would have shut down the number of ironies I could have got going. But I didn't want either to write it as if Cromwell were a character out there, so that Cromwell has the same status as Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and all the other characters. What the book does, it gets behind Cromwell's eyes. It's as if he's got a camera on his shoulder. And this is why, because it's closer than the conventional third person, this is why Cromwell is always he. At the back, yeah? There's a microphone coming. So you know the basic history. You're filling in these gaps. You've got a camera on his shoulder. Was there any particular point where you were getting into his inside thoughts, so on and so forth, which was a dilemma for you in terms of how to portray the character? I suppose you stop thinking of him as a character. You start thinking of him as a person. And, of course, the obligation on you is to make that viewpoint consistent. Along with that goes something the reader has to know, that you're not writing an impartial account. It's a very partial one. It's very much history told from Cromwell's point of view. But I don't think once I got into it, I felt there would be contradictions. What I got more of was a sense of a character who was evolving. Because when I... Do you remember when we were, were back at school and we did exams and we had to write character studies of people? And I couldn't have written you a character study of Thomas Cromwell at the beginning of the book. And if I could have done, that would have been the wrong way of going about it. He, he was a character who had to live with. And as I began to look through his eyes, I began to learn more. And I still, you see, I can't add him up. I'm longing to get on with the next book because there are things that I feel I don't know how he will react to. I don't know what he'll make of them. I don't even know what he'll do. And so to me, it's still an unfolding drama. And I think, I really believe that's the way a novel should be for the writer, that it shouldn't be flat and cut and dried and all systematized and formatted. I think it should be like a chunk of life and always liable to go in some unexpected direction. How much, how much work 
research, months, did you have to do before you felt comfortable with living this life, with Thomas Cromwell being a person rather than a, a character? I think for the first year, I, the book took me about five years. I can't really separate it into a period of research and a period of writing because it doesn't work that way for me. It, it's really when I approach a scene, I grasp what I need to know, which may be more than I anticipated or different from what I anticipated. And similarly, when I would read a book for background, I would find that some discrete piece of knowledge tripped my thinking in a different direction. And so to me, I suppose research is, is a creative process. But th there was a rather strange thing because I've written two books set in the 18th century. Um, one in Paris and one in, in London in the 1780s. And for a long time, I had an 18th century eye. And I had 18th century diction. And I don't really approve of pastiche, but I could do it as easily as I can talk to you. And when I walked around London, it was the 18th century London I was seeing. It was Dr. Johnson's London. And I had to just scrub it all out of my mind. Um, and it's a very, very fundamental shift that you're looking down through the layers of a city. Um, and when you come into a room, you're going to see everything differently. And for a long time, I couldn't actually see the Tudor world. Uh, I had to think hard about when they came into a room, where are they going to sit and on what? And what will the light be like? And then, you know, a marvelous transition takes place. You think it will never come, but it does. And somehow, you're completely at home in it. So now if I go off to look at some property, for example, a National Trust House, it's just as if I'm blinkered. 18th century, not interesting. Um, and I look straight through the layers and, and, and see what's Tudor. At the back there? There's a, there's a microphone coming. Thank you. First off, it's been wonderful listening to you tonight, so thank you very much. My question relates to an uh, interview in The Guardian you did, in which you said, uh, you talked about the top ten rules for aspiring writers. Oh, yes. And your number one was that if they were serious, that they should get an accountant. Now, few are as successful as you. Could you explain that, or did I misinterpret what you were referring to? I don't know if... if um, all the audience have got it, but this, this gentleman's asking about the feature The Guardian did recently, uh, where we were urged, a group of writers were urged to come up with their top ten rules um, for aspiring writers. And my top ten, um, my, my number one was, are you serious about this? If so, get an accountant. Um, 
<laughs> and it has nothing to do with success or le less um, lack of success. My, um, my first book advance was £2,000, and I took it straight to an accountant because it was very important to me to be right with the tax man. And as I said in those rules, you cannot give your soul to literature if you're worrying about the inland revenue. So, <laughs> there is a serious point, though. At some point, and it should be early, you have to start regarding yourself as a professional writer. This is not my hobby, you have to say to yourself. This is my job. Your friends and family may be highly resistant to this because they cannot see you working. So the only way you can convince them that you're not simply staring out of the window is to come home one day waving a check at them. <laughs> and this is important because a lot of people, when they begin writing, it's not so much that the world doesn't take them seriously, it's that they don't take themselves seriously. So I th what I was saying, um, we didn't have time to unwrap our rules. But I think what I was saying is, know that this is not a hobby, that this is a job. It is a craft, it is a trade like any other, and you're worthy of your hire. Uh, and that was why I began my 10 points with it, and came back at the, to the end to say, break any of these rules, but don't break the one about getting an accountant. There was down the front, I think. I was, going to, I was going to ask a question that Erica Wagner actually already asked you about your use of the present tense. Yes. But I have noticed that a lot of historians also use the present tense when they're presenting a documentary uh, about the, the historical past. And I just wondered, is, there, is it just to make the scene seem more immediate or do you have another reason for, for choosing to do this? I think it is immediacy, but I also think that when it's used in, a, when you say a documentary, you mean, for example, a television documentary. Well, of course, film scripts are written in the present tense because it's what's unfolding before you. Um, it's not like a story being told backwards. I think immediacy is it, but I don't think it's, it's something you have to force. I think it's a very, a very natural narrative mode. And it's one that, if you like, tends to keep the reader on the end, edge of their seat, and which involves the reader in the narrative. There's something about the past tense which um, is, Perhaps condescending would be the wrong word, but it says, I am in possession of the story and I will unfold it at my pace. I am the narrator. Whereas the present tense says, 
We're all in this together. You're as wise as I am. Let's turn the page and see what happens. Very interesting. At the back here. Hi, Hilary. Um, you mentioned that when that during the writing process that ideas present themselves to you in a multimedia way. Do you feel that with the changing nature of publishing and the move towards digital that during that your writing process has changed, you actually, when you're writing, you're thinking of how you could add visual and audio elements to your writing? I think really it's the technology catching up with the writer. Because, as I say, I already have all the add-ons in my head, all the enhancements. But it's, I mean, it's great fun. Um, it's like, I was thinking the other day, um, go back before books to illuminated manuscripts, um, where the story was... Um, was glowing at you from one initial. And when you, when you got an illuminated manuscript, of course, there would be all sorts of pictures there that only related in the most tangential way to the story under discussion. It might be, um, you know, um, a, a, a serious piece of theology but what's going on around the side? There are all sorts of little animals running about, or men pulling weird faces. Anything that came into the head of the bored illustrator, the monk. When printed books came in, we lost that. And it's lovely to think that, that we're going back again to this brilliant color, um, almost getting the narrative out of the author's head. Whether it will change the way we write, I'm not sure. You see, I think when an idea comes for a modern author, you don't even assume that it's a novel, that it's a prose narrative. It could be an idea for a film. It could be a radio play. Uh, it could be a poem. Every idea has one form in which it is strong. And it is your job to select the appropriate form. If you get that wrong, you will struggle. And sometimes it's part way through your struggles that you see, oh, well, I know why this isn't working. It's because it should be on radio. Or this short story is really a novel. So I think for a long time, authors have been used to working in well, with a huge range of possibilities that are there at the inception of any idea. It will be enormous fun to see where this goes. I have been a writer for long enough that I, I wrote two books, longhand and on a typewriter. Um, and I remember, so I can remember the early discussions when writers began to, to write on the screen. And the, the naysayers and the doom mongers, apparently because of this new technology, we were all going to produce garbage. 
um, because we will be encouraged to type on and on and on without any effort. But actually, it seems to me that the opposite has proved the case, because the ability to see your words arrive without effort and to edit on the screen is really the perfectionist tool. And it seemed to me it should have led to, to better writing rather than worse writing. And certainly, the, um, the productivity over one's lifetime now must become greater. I shudder to think how I would have written Wolf Hall without the benefit of contemporary technology or how I would have researched it. And, of course, having the use of internet sources makes a tremendous difference when you're engaged in what is also, in a sense, a work of scholarship. So, I am not one of the people who... I, I wouldn't say I'm hugely technologically literate, but I'm not a Luddite either. And, and I'm just on the alert for everything, naturally, that will enhance an author's sales, but also that will enhance an author's way of working. And I think we've got some very exciting times ahead. I would, uh, I would add to that, if I might. Uh, there's an exhibition on now, alas, in the United States at uh, Emory University in Georgia, uh, which has just uh, acquired the archive of Sir Salman Rushdie, which com is an archive, as we imagine it, of notebooks and papers and journals. Um, but also, this archive consisted of four as it happens, Apple computers um, that he gave to them. And the exhibition is an interactive exhibition of his archive. So you can sit at a computer and be in his files, as it were, which is a, a, another side of this experience, really. Couple more questions before we end at the front here. Um, I was struck by the recent interest in Tudor politics in recent years with your book, Winning the Booker, and the BBC mm -hmm. TV series. Um, and it reminded me of the interest in Radical Shakespeare under Margaret Thatcher. And I was thinking about you saying you'd waited 20 or 30 years to write this book. And I was wondering if you saw any connection between the Tudor politics you're writing about and our contemporary political situation. And if so, what was it? I'm not someone who would force parallels. Um, I mean, you, you, you're probably aware of David Starkey's now celebrated Bon Mot that Thomas Cromwell was Alistair Campbell with an axe. Um, <laughs> which is a good analysis as far as it goes. Um, but I, as I say, I think the past is of interest for its own sake. I, I'm not fishing around for parallels with contemporary situations. But having said that, what you see exposed in this book are the, the, the eternal verities of the struggle for power, if you like. 
I think that's what I'm interested in writing about at every level, whether it's in the political arena directly and overtly, or whether it's the power struggle between two people or the power struggle in a family. I think, in a sense, it's my only subject. Over here. Thank you. I love this idea of um, the writing process being a multimedia experience. So when this played out for you, or glowed out at you, as yes. you say, was Leo McKern there? Did you have to push him out of the way? He was uh, obviously in The Man, from, uh, a man for All Seasons. Uh, yes, he made such an unconvincingly elderly Cromwell <laughs> that, I, no, I didn't have to at all. Um, what, um, as soon as you engage with Thomas Cromwell, what you get is a sense of, although in his portrait he's a really solid, heavy-set man, the experience of conversation with him, as recorded by the Spanish ambassador, is um, you see a man who is immensely quick um, and whose mind is darting all over the place. In other words, it's, it's a really mercurial experience. He did seem to think extremely fast. Um, so I didn't, it, it's strange really how the persona arises in your head because obviously it's partly Holbein's portrait. But then as soon as it moves, as soon as it walks and talks, it becomes your own construct. And then of course people say to you, well, if it comes to the screen, who would you like to play Thomas Cromwell? And, you know, I'd have to knit him myself. <laughs> At the back. Hilary, you mentioned that you couldn't have written this book in your 20s or 30s, but um, if you could go back and meet that younger version of yourself, what advice would you give to her about her writing? Um, that's interesting because I think any advice I could give her, she would have regarded as absolutely superfluous and stamped on. And you know, I would never advise anyone to run their writing career like I did. At the age of 22, knowing no one in publishing, no writers, no historians, and having no contacts whatsoever, I launched myself out on a huge novel about the French Revolution. I spent most of my 20s writing two drafts of it. When I was 27 and I had finished it, I, I tried to get it published. It was a futile enterprise. Nobody wanted to know. It was 336,000 words long. I would 
say to my young self, why don't you do something easy? Why don't you do something autobiographical? Um, but of course, I would have despised that advice. I would have said then, no, you have to set your stall out for absolutely the thing you want to do. And what I felt was, I wanted to read a good novel about the French Revolution, and it had to be written from the revolutionary's point of view. I wasn't interested in the ladies with high hair, enough about them, enough about the Scarlet Pimpernel, enough Tale of Two Cities. Let's look at it from the other side. The revolutionaries have got much the better stories. And again, no one was writing it, so I thought I'd better do it. Uh, it was a perceived lack of a book in the world. And it ought to have been a complete folly. And for, it seemed like that for many years. But I served a kind of 12-year apprenticeship to myself before I got into print. When a place of greater safety failed to sell, I said, right, go away, put it on the shelf, write a modern novel, write a short novel, but make it the best you can do. And of course, because in a place of greater safety, I've faced almost every problem that a novelist can come up against. And I've faced almost, I'd used almost every technique in the novelist's armory. So I was far more adept than I would have been otherwise. So then came the day, of course, when I was five novels in. And I took it down from the shelf and looked at it. I don't think I've ever been more intimidated in my writing life than at that point. Because I thought, what if it's rubbish? No, what, what if I've wasted all these years? Or it's just a piece of apprentice work and it doesn't actually convince as a book. But it was published at that point and it won me the first major prize I'd received. It was a very unorthodox and perhaps in some ways, as I say, ill-advised way to go about it. But that's what writing careers are like. You stumble along from one expedient to the next. You would think that a multiplicity of choices are laid out before you, but in the end, you can only do the book that's within you. Doesn't matter what the fashion is, doesn't matter what your agent suggests, or the marketing people say, or what people push and chiver you towards. You have to find the best book that's within yourself and write it, and then you hope the world will find you. So it uh, remains to me to thank profusely Hilary Mantel and all the lovely people at the Apple Store, and you, thank you for coming. Thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.